Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Well, we're in this series, The Hunt for Happy. Let me stop. I, I want to do something first. Is prom next, Mount Pulaski prom next weekend? Is that right? I would like, I, I've heard of churches doing this, and I think, and some of you have done this, uh, girls and boys, uh, if you dress up for prom, would you come Sunday morning dressed up? And if I can get 10 of you to do that, would you text me and tell me that you're going to come dressed up, and I will dress up. I have a wedding next weekend, and I'll come dressed as I did for the wedding, Okay. So, and here's the other thing, your parents have to dress like they would for a wedding too, okay? But I need 10 of you to do it. If you, 10 of you don't do it, I'm not doing it. So text me, 217-791-2413 is my number. It's in the bulletin if you'd like to do that. Okay, let's do that. We're in this series, A Hunt for Happiness. Um, and this one today, I, I will say, I believe is the hardest one of all. No, no doubt in my mind, it's the hardest. When we are rejoicing people, we are actually obeying God. This is a command in a lot of places in the Bible. For instance, Philippians 3.1, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord, and that's in the imperative command form. He said, It's no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Interesting. Joy is a safeguard for you. Then in the next chapter, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, in case you didn't get it the first time. Rejoice. To the church in Thessalonica, he again says, rejoice always. Why? Why does the Bible command you and me to be joyful? Well, the most obvious reason is we have Jesus. We have the gospel. You have good reason to be joyful. If you wake up and everyone, you wake up tomorrow morning, Monday's usually not the favorite day for a lot of people, and you ask, boy, what do I have to be joyful about today? You might want to think about Jesus who came to earth, became a human like us. He showed us how to live, how to love. He died to forgive me of my sins. He rose again to defeat death so I can defeat death. He's coming to transform this world into a better place, and it's going to happen. I've been adopted into his family. I'm called his friend I've been given the spirit. I have the word of truth. I have a purpose. I have an identity that will never be threatened. I have a hope for as long as I live on this earth and an eternity far beyond this life. There's just a few reasons for you to rejoice tomorrow morning if you get up and wonder, what do I have to be happy about? But there's another reason we're commanded to be joyful. When you are a joyful person, you give a gift to everybody who comes in touch with you. Your joy is not just about you. Now, we all know that in the family or at work or church, wherever, when you're around joyful people, it just enhances everybody's life. You owe it to people in your life to be as joyful as you can because you'll be giving a gift to them. When dad isn't happy, he's growling around like a bear, affects the whole family. And we all know when mama ain't happy, I've noticed in the office, when I'm not happy, Tafa is not a joyful place. And when Teresa's not joyful, well, she's always joyful. So. Here's another reason your joy is not just about you. Unhappy, grouchy Christians are a stronger argument against Christianity than the strongest argument any atheist could make. Joy is a witness issue. People are watching. And if they know you're a believer, they assume if followers of Jesus are not joyful, there can only be one or two explanations. It's either that uh, because these believers are following Jesus wrongly, or, and this is the killer, here's the other option, it's because followers of Jesus, following Jesus makes people crabby. Not a good witness. And if they see, they see unhappy, crabby, grouchy Christians, they'll say, well, that's what Jesus does, following Jesus does for you. And that's why our mission as a church cannot be fulfilled if we are not joyful beings in this world. And that's why joy is commanded repeatedly in the Bible. You and I have an obligation to be joyful. 
So you be happy whether you want to be happy or not. You got it? Some of you are sinning right now. Okay, today I'll talk about the shocking secret happy people learn. And this one has to be learned because this does not come naturally. Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, notice all the relational statements here, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Relationships, so vital. Do nothing, here's the key, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Now, until we can understand the context of Philippi, we'll never really grasp the game-changing, radical nature of these words to them. Uh, some commentators say Paul is deliberately subverting the culture. He's turning the value system of Philippi on its head here in chapter 2. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony, and Roman culture was oriented around status and social recognition. And society was divided into some pretty clear ranks or categories, uh, kind of a pecking order, and the basic division was between the elites and the non-elites. Historian Joseph Hellerman says only about 2% of the whole population of the Roman Empire was in the elite category, and then 98% were just at the masses. So at the bottom of this group of the masses were the slaves. And although there's different variation within slavery, these were the people basic with no status, no honor, no control of their lives. Their masters could punish them, could even kill them. They're at the bottom of the ladder. And the next in the stair step is the freedmen. And these are people who are not slaves, but they don't have many rights either. And then above them, the next category, still part of the non-elites, were the citizens of the Roman Empire. Most people living in Philippi would not have been citizens, so this is still a minority. In fact, the majority of people were slaves and freedmen. But if you had a citizen, you had some rights that the other two groups did not have. Uh, you had a little higher status. And then there was a very small group of people in the elite class, and this is the lowest level in the elite. These were the people who were called equestrians. Now, when you, what do you think of when you think of equestrian? Horses, okay, horse riders. And these people had enough money to buy horses and take them into battle. So if you can afford a horse, you're elite. And very often these were military people, uh, so that's equestrians. And then above them was a very, very small, very elite group that were members of the Roman Senate, the senators. And then at the very top, they had in Rome, they had the emperor known as Caesar. So that's the ladder of ancient Rome. And everything in their society was arranged to reinforce where you stood. For example, clothing. Clothes were all about status. If you're a freedman, you were able to wear a special hat. Now, that sounds a little goofy, but it was called a freedman's cap. And that cap was a sign, this is a freedman, and when someone saw that cape, they'd know this is not a runaway slave. And he could wear that cap with a little bit of pride, say, well, I'm not one of those. I'm not one of those uh, slaves. I'm up here. If you're a citizen, you could wear a toga, and they were actually a hassle to wrap and wear, so folks wore them because they just wanted people to know, I'm not a slave, I'm not a freedman, I'm a citizen. I'm above them. If you're an equestrian, not only could you wear a toga, you were allowed to wear a gold ring. And it's a way of saying, I'm not one of those other people below me. I'm up here. And if you read the book of James, James warns the church. He says, don't fawn over somebody just because they come in wearing gold rings. It was a sign of honor and status. And James says, don't play that game. Senators could not only wear a gold ring and a toga, they could wear a toga with a purple stripe. Wouldn't that be cool? If you were an equestrian, you couldn't have the purple stripe. And then, of course, if you're Caesar, 
You can do whatever you want and all kinds of perks. So clothing identified where you stood. Clothing still identifies people to a certain extent today, uh, like this person. The next one. Uh, how high is that on the social ladder? <laughs> Actually, they always look happy, right? Anyway, it wasn't just clothing that determined status. The legal system was also designed to reinforce your status, so your rights and punishments would vary depending on your standing. Citizens could not be flogged. Non-citizens could. When Paul was in Philippi in Acts 16, there was quite a controversy because they did flog him and then found out later he was a citizen. Uh-oh, you don't flog citizens. It's against the law. You flog freemen and slaves. The most dishonoring and humiliating punishment was to be hung on a cross, crucifixion. The Romans were quite good at capital punishment, and they had many forms for it. And the most dishonoring, most disgraceful was crucifixion. It was generally reserved for slaves because its purpose was not only to kill, but also to humiliate. The technical phrase for crucifixion was the slave's punishment. Sitting at public events was all about status. In Philippi, if you went to an athletic contest or the theater, seating was arranged not by ticket price, but by status. And I'm trying to think of, you know, parallels to today. The closest thing I could think of is flying. If you're going on a flight, you'll have good seats and we'll say that you are flying first class. And if you fly first class, you get a recliner and special attention and a special restroom. I wouldn't know, but that's what they tell me anyway. Uh, you don't have to ride back there with a rabble and we'll put up a curtain or a wall so that the rabble can't look into the Holy of Holies where the first class people sit, you know, the elites. And things are done to reinforce the status. The higher class passengers get to board before lower class passengers. So if you're lower class, you get to wait and watch the higher status people go before you. And I'm not bitter about this. It's just what happens. <laughs> On the monitor, there's an upgrade list. Well, who doesn't want an upgrade? And what you'll never see in an airport is a downgrade list. You'll, see the names of, you'll never see the names of first class people who are vying to see you can sit in the economy or let somebody else take their first class seat. That just doesn't happen. Now, there was an article that came out by a frequent flyer expert entitled, How to Cope with Losing Your Elite Status. Interesting. What a terrible thing to lose your elite status. According to the article, every year on March 1st, for the airlines, they reassess your status, and this writer called it Judgment Day. In Philippi, this loss of elite status was called being humbled. Being humbled was always a tragedy. Humility was not a virtue in the ancient world. That's a huge difference between then and now. No one ever volunteered to be humble. No one ever said, I would like a downgrade. I would like to give up my first class status and sit back in the economy. Now, Teresa played a song for me. She knew I was doing this series, and I'm not sure what she was saying, what she was saying to say, but it really fit with the sermon, so I'd like to hear just a little bit of this song. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble When you're perfect in every way I can't wait to look in the mirror Cause I get better looking each day Yep, yep. To know me is to love me. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, that's enough. He swears on the next line, so we took that out. <laughs> and there's another line. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. No one in Rome would sing that. No one would try to be humble. Now, in the ancient world, you could be humbled, but there's nothing worse than going down. Pliny was an ancient writer. He said, it is more uglifying, I love that word, more uglifying to lose praise, to go down, 
than to have never been praised at all. So going down was the worst thing that could happen to you. There are records of these titles and offices and this love for honor and people's accounts of their lives. And interestingly enough, there are more records of these accounts about status in Philippi than in any other city in the Roman Empire. So this is big stuff, and Paul's going to mess with them. And maybe he'll mess with us a little bit too. He writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather than humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Do you get how radical that is now? He's going after the sacred cow of that day and maybe of our day too. In your relationships with one another, again, relationships are key to joy. We talked about this. Have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. You want a good relationship, do what Jesus did. Did. Being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Paul is using some really loaded language here, and everybody knows it. That little phrase, in nature God, was used in the Old Testament to describe the visible manifestation of God's glory. And so he's saying here, Christ is clothed in God's glory, clothed in majesty. He had status. He has the toga with a purple stripe and the ring. He is actually above it. He is Caesar. He's the Lord. But he did not consider his status as something to be used to his own advantage. Like most people would, he chose to disadvantage himself for the benefit of other people. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave, is the word there, by the way, being made in human likeness. With Jesus, there's no purple stripe, no gold ring, no citizen's toga, no freedman's cap. Paul deliberately uses that word slave, the bottom rung. Jesus has gone from the highest position. He is Caesar. He is the Lord to the lowest position of slave. And he's volunteered for the ultimate downgrade to become a slave of everything. But that's not it. There's more. Paul goes on. And being, and being found in appearance as a man, God becoming man is quite a downgrade. He humbled himself. Again, in the ancient world, sometimes people were humbled, but nobody ever humbled themselves voluntarily. This is almost immoral in, in their thinking. Jesus humbled himself voluntarily. He took a divine downgrade. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. That's another no-no. You don't become obedient intentionally. The Romans hated that word. It was a word for slaves. That was a word for children. It was a word of weakness. No one ever used the word obedient to describe themselves. Jesus became obedient, obedient to death, even death. On a cross... The ultimate humiliation for the lowest status person on the planet was crucifixion. That's as low as it gets. So the Lord of all, the Caesar of the universe, becomes a crucified slave. And everybody in Philippi and anybody in Rome would read those few words about Jesus with scorn and contempt and, and at best confusion and say, are you kidding me? He went down and did it on purpose. That's why Paul talks about the cross being foolishness to the Gentiles. Nobody does that. Now, this text is actually a commentary not only on Jesus, but also on God himself. This is the kind of God God is. He's a servant God. Verse 6, it says, sometimes it's translated, although he was God. It could be translated, because he was God. In other words, it's not that Jesus acts the opposite of what God does. He didn't act in a shockingly ungodlike manner. He was acting just like God as a servant. So most people have a wrong view of God. Jesus humbled himself because he was God, and if you want to be like God, humble yourself. The result, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, 
At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and in heaven and earth and under the earth. This is why we worship Sunday morning. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The one who is far above Caesar, who became the lowest of lowly slaves, has now been exalted as Lord of all. Who do you think is the most exalted president in the history of the United States? Probably Abraham Lincoln. At least here in Illinois, we would say that. Partly because there's humility and servant attitude. And the shocking secret that happy people learn is that the road to joy lies not through advancement of self, but crucifixion of self. And it's hard to recruit this way. Jesus comes and says, take up your cross. Well, who builds a movement like that? We recruit people like, well, we're looking for the proud, the few, the, the Marines, you know, be all you can be, you know, and stuff. But Jesus says, no, take a downgrade. Humiliate yourself. Deny your self-serving, idol-worshiping, fearful, petty, small-minded, me-first, ladder-climbing self. You need to die to all that. If you want joy, get over yourself. Just die so that you can be the you that God intended for you to be. A nobler, better, truer you might live in you. A you that God wants you to be. So the shocking secret the joyful followers of Jesus learn is joy comes not through indulging my sinful self, but dying to it. Paul begins this letter way back in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. You just can't get any lower than that. A slave of a crucified slave. Now, this raises all kinds of alarm bells. You mean I have to voluntarily sacrifice myself for others and consider others better than myself? That's crazy. You mean I have to put limits on myself? You mean I have to watch people get ahead of me and actually cheer them on? Yeah. Well, let's look at the other side. Here's the other option. I want to be selfish. I want to be envious when others get ahead. I want to indulge my every whim. You think that's going to really lead to life and joy? Really? Yeah, but you mean I'm supposed to disadvantage my lifestyle for the benefit of people I don't know, like, you know, people in other countries, people I've never even met, and humble myself and confess my flaws and guilt and sin to somebody, even if I don't get caught, and I need to get on my knees daily and confess my inadequacy and need for God and for His mercy? Yeah, yeah. Take up your cross like God did. Again, let me ask, is being selfish and climbing the ladder and running over others and trying to get your own way and trying to get ahead of others and being jealous of others and getting angry, how's that working for you? When you come to the end of life, so what? Now, I don't know what taking up the cross might mean for you. What's it mean? For, what do you need to die to? Guys, be bluntly honest here. Some of you need to die to your pornography. You're killing your wife and you're killing your family and you're killing your soul. Stop it and get some help. Ladies, some of you need to uh, give up your anger or jealousy or maybe the idolatry of the perfect family. Maybe we all just need to give up our hard heads. Quit being stubborn. Die to being unteachable. Die to that. Maybe it's love for money. Maybe you just have a hard time letting go. You become a slave to it. You need to die to that. Maybe it's time. You don't have time to give to God. You know, it's my time. Really? Is it your time? Who gives you that time in the first place? Don't be selfish with it. Die to that attitude. Maybe you really don't know what you need to crucify. If not, ask God. God, would you let me know? You know what's in my heart. Let me know. Or maybe ask another person, someone who really knows you. What do I need to die to? There are two basic rules of human enlightenment. Rule number one, there is a God. Rule number two, you are not Him. Most of us, many of you anyway, have been baptized and one of the scriptures that we read very often is Romans 6, 1 through 4. It says, we are those who have died to sin. 
How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We're therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Notice, death, death died. We buried, uh, we're buried with Him. So a funeral has taken place and you were the guest of honor at your baptism. I love what a four-year-old girl did. She was at church and saw her first baptism. And later that night, she took all of her dolls into the bathtub and held her own little baptismal service. It was great. And as she dunked each doll under the water, she repeated, Now I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son, and hold your nose. <laughs> when baptism, we're buried underwater, symbolizing our burial to sin. We've died and raised to new life of a humble service, just like Jesus. And just as Christ was raised and honored, we too will be honored, but we have to die first. Now today, we chose today, the staff did, to, to, to honor some of our humble servants, our volunteers. They voluntarily humbled themselves and given of themselves. And just as Christ was exalted, we want to do a little exalting of them today. We're, we're going to show a little video of some of our servants. And I notice that most of these people who serve are also some of our most joyful people. I don't think that's coincidental. They have learned the shocking secret of happiness. Now... Let me preface this by saying we don't have pictures of everyone. We have so many volunteers around here. So this is more just a sampling. I, I regret we didn't get people to set up these chairs. You know what a job that is every Saturday. We didn't get any picture of them, but thank you for doing that. Uh, some vitality. We, we, we missed some anyway, and not on purpose. But we included, we also included some of our older servants. Uh, these are people who have been pillars and servants of the past in this church. We want to honor all our volunteers. So this is just a thanks to all of you who humbled yourselves to serve. Sitting at the stoplight, you can't be bothered by the heart cry written on the cardboard in her but when she looks him in the eye His heart is broken open wide And he feels the hand of God reach out through him As heaven touches her
closed doors as you I said God put a million million doors in the world for his love to walk through one of those doors is you Man, um, that's the backbone of the church. That's the lifeblood of the church. Thank you uh, for all of you who served. I heard about a rather bizarre experiment with ants. I read this a few years ago. Harvard biologist Edward Wilson studied ants, and he noticed it took a few days for ants to recognize when one of their crumpled nestmates had actually, nestmates had actually died. He finally figured out that ants identified death by smell and not by sight. And as the ant's body began to decompose, the other ants would carry it off to the refuse pile outside of the nest. And Wilson was able to narrow down the chemical smell. It was oleic acid. And so he did a little experiment. He put some oleic acid on little pieces of paper just to see what would happen. He put them in the ant uh, nest place. And sure enough, they carried those little pieces of paper out to the ant cemetery and got rid of them because they had the smell. And then Wilson painted oleic acid on the bodies of living ants. And sure enough, their nestmates seized them, marched them out to the cemetery because they had the smell, the smell of death. And the living ants were wriggling in protest. I'm not dead. And the legs and antenna going everywhere. But they had the smell of death, so to the cemetery they go. And if the ants with the oleic acid did not get the smell off and went back to the nest, sure enough, they'd pick them right up, take them right back out to the ant cemetery. Paul said, you've died to sin. However, that old body of sin protests. It's still wiggling. And on this side of heaven, most all of us will struggle with dying to ourselves. Self-crucifixion is just as radical today as it was in Philippi. But if you are in Christ, you have the smell of death. And Paul says, take that old body of death and bury it. One of the best ways to do that in our culture is the 12-step program. Many have overcome addictions and have died to some old ways through these 12 steps, and they work because they're biblical. And I just want to mention the first two. The first step in the 12-step recovery, I admit, I am powerless over whatever it might be, alcohol, pride, envy, sin, any pornography, whatever it might be. I am powerless. I cannot conquer it on my own. You don't start there, you're done. Second step, I believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. I put my faith in a higher power. And if I don't get those first two, we can't go any farther. 
I have to admit I'm powerless. I don't know how to live the good life. I don't have the willpower to do it. I need help. I need a higher power. So every morning I get up, I'm going to read that higher power's instruction book for my life. And I'm going to humble my life to do it his way and not mine. Being master of my own life hasn't worked. Living under him as a crucified slave is better than living as a king anywhere else. And because I have Jesus and because I know I'm loved by Jesus and I have the security in Jesus and he's not going to give up on me, I can now humble myself knowing that this is the only way to really a healthy, joyful life. That's the secret. Now next week we're going to talk about what some have called the greatest virtue of all and some even called it the parent of all other virtues. So it's really, really important in order to have joy in your life and it's a basic Christian attitude. I hope you'll come back. Let's pray. Lord, this is the toughest Uh, dying to self, and we all go kicking and screaming and protesting because we don't want to die. But the only way to freedom and health is to die to all these other idols and traps that we we get pulled into. And so I pray that we'll first of all admit we're powerless. And second, that you are the only one who can restore us to sanity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 